One of the things the, uh, the internet does is it uh, assures that hardly a day goes by that we are not exposed to some sadness, some sorrow, some story that uh, grieves us in some way. It feels like we are inundated sometimes with stories of people who endure harm or pain. There's always been pain and suffering. The, the internet maybe makes it look like it's more prevalent, but ever since the time of Adam, there has been violence and death and hardship and suffering and sickness and disease and pain. They've flowed into the lives of men and women and children and wreaked havoc. All of that suffering and sorrow quite naturally produces questions, trying to understand these things, trying to understand what we are to learn from them, and the Bible faces those questions head on. God's Word never shies from exposing the depravity of man, the suffering of human beings, or the ravages of disease. It is all life in a fallen world, and the Bible doesn't sugarcoat it. Instead, it guides us to see these things through the providence of God, to see them through God's work in our lives. These questions are complicated and frequently addressed in Scripture. And one of the places that I would submit to you that we see some response to this, at least in part, is John chapter 9. We're continuing our survey of the Gospel of John. This will not be a comprehensive look at suffering and evil and answers to all those questions, but I do think this story in John chapter 9 gives us some glimpse of Jesus' teaching on this topic. Just to set the stage for this, this is Jesus in Jerusalem. He has been encountering various conflicts, if you will, with the Jewish religious leaders that we have seen. There is no time stamp on this passage. In several of the encounters that we see from Jesus, we get a feast or some kind of dating of some kind that makes it really clear as to when this occurs. We know this is during the final months of the ministry of Jesus. This is during that fall, winter preceding the spring when he is crucified. Somewhere after the Feast of Booths that we saw introduced in chapter 7. So that would have been the fall harvest around October-ish. And between that and chapter 10 where we have the Feast of Dedication, which is sort of the precursor to Hanukkah, which would be in around December. And so it's somewhere in that late fall that this takes place. We also know, and, and Stuart led us through the balance of chapter 8 last week, and we saw again just the heightened clash between Jesus and the Jewish religious leaders who are just going after him um, and, and, and questioning everything and criticizing Jesus. And so they are on a mission to destroy him, and they have not been able to do so up until this point. So let's pick up in chapter 9, just the first couple of verses of John 9, verses 1 and 2. As he passed by, he saw a man blind from birth, and his disciples asked him, Rabbi, who sinned, this man or his parents, that he was born blind? Jesus will eventually go and tell this blind man to wash in the pool of Siloam, which is in Jerusalem. So we know that the setting of this is Jerusalem. They are walking somewhere. We know this is also a Sabbath. Verse 14 will make that point that this is occurring on the Sabbath. And so um, there's a lot happening here. Jesus is walking with his disciples and he notices this man, this blind man, presumably who is begging. He's described later as one who is a beggar. Um, and, and so Jesus takes the initiative, much as he does in chapter 5 when it's the lame man by the pool that Jesus went to and healed that man. Clearly in this instance, Jesus it takes the lead in this. There's no plea. There's no request. 
It is simply Jesus seeing this particular man and setting his eyes on him. And in ancient cultures, this, this man would have been um, one who had suffered greatly. Blindness in a culture like this was a curse, really, for the most part, to a lifetime of pain and suffering. There was not assistance. There, there was not um, a, a way for things to get better. Life was difficult. It was painful. Uh, even though the man had parents who were involved in his life, we will see them later on. They are alive. They know of him. They know what's going on. Clearly, they are unable to sustain him and that he is out begging. And so life was hard. Blindness meant that you were consigned in this culture to near total dependence on other people to do everything for you. All you could do is simply beg for assistance in some way and had little or no hope. Things were not going to improve for this man. His lot in life was hard. And Jesus probably comes across him as he is begging at that point. The disciples see Jesus notice the man, and it prompts a question in their mind. And the question sounds a little like one we might get in the book of Job from Job's counselors. You remember Job's counselor saying to Job, Listen, Job, if you would just admit what sin you did that caused all of this suffering, then everything would be okay if you would just confess your sin. And so here comes a question along those lines. Rabbi, who sinned? Who did the evil that caused this terrible tragedy, this man to be blind from birth? They are not straying from what is common Jewish teaching at that time. It was almost a formula from the rabbis, the, the belief that, that this kind of blindness must have stemmed from some kind of evil. It had to be this man's parents who did something to deserve this, or even, and you get it in the question here, they say, was it this man? Which is concerning at first because he was born blind. So how is it that he could have gotten himself in that place? And there is some rabbinical teaching that goes back to Genesis 25 when Jacob and Esau, it says, struggled in the womb. You could say that they were wrestling in the womb. And some of the, the rabbis extrapolated from that the idea that even in the womb, someone could do something so grievous as to bring punishment on themselves. They had the, the belief that, that in line with that, he might have done something in utero that would have created this situation and caused him to incur blindness. Later on, when they are, the Pharisees are in this man's face because he is glorifying Jesus Christ, in verse 34, they will say to him, you were born in utter sin. So there is this, this notion on their part that somehow this man could have done something even unborn, something so grievous to have deserved this blindness. At the core, though, of the question in verse 2, Rabbi, who sinned this man or his parents that he was born blind, is probably the, the deeper issue that all of us have wrestled with at one time or another, and that is this struggle with human suffering, how to, how to make sense of this, how to make sense of it, especially when there is someone who is born, a, a child who is born with some kind of sickness, some sort of debilitating disease. Is there anything good for that child who enters life and suffering and lives with it for years. Any parent who has had a child who has gone through grievous pain that, that can't be fixed in some way understands the, the sorrow that goes with that. And so there's some of that in this, in this question. So verse 3, Jesus answered, It was not that this man sinned or his parents, but that the works of God might be displayed in him. 
So there are a lot of passages in Scripture, and I said this before, that deal with the topic of suffering and evil and God responding to that. Again, this is not going to be comprehensive, but how do we, how do we address suffering in a fallen world knowing that sickness and disease are all part of the consequences of being in a fallen and broken world. It is the fact that sin has infected the world and cursed it, that there is a dyingness to creation. The Bible, though, rarely links specific sin with particular sickness. The Bible doesn't often make that kind of a specific connection, and we are not given license from God's Word to go around saying, well, that... That particular sickness that you have is a consequence of this sin that you did at this time. There are times when there are obvious consequences from, from sin, from sinful behavior. There are things that happen as a result. But the Bible doesn't give us a license to speak with certainty and say, your suffering in this case is clearly a consequence of your sin. We, something we need to approach carefully. It, it's not something we should avoid, because the instructions concerning communion in 1 Corinthians 11 say, let a man examine himself. It gives a warning in that passage and says, we should be looking at our own hearts. We should be pleading to God for help in seeing sinful patterns in our own lives and not uh, treating them glibly. In fact, uh, in Corinth, professing Christians are participating in communion, and, and yet they are carrying on in patterns of sin, broken fellowship with others, and, and disdaining others. And that's why the warning in 1 Corinthians 11 goes on to say, that is why many of you are weak and ill, and some have died. And so, yes, it is good on our part. It is a wise response on our part when there is sickness and suffering and hardship to say, Lord, are you seeking to teach me something in this? What do I need to see in this? Is there sin in my life? Is there a relationship that I've left broken and, and haven't pursued? Am I to learn something from this? But apart from clear scripture, we need to hold our conclusions loosely. So Jesus' response to the disciples here prompts what I'm going to suggest to you is one of two things that I think Jesus is teaching us in this passage concerning ways God may be working in the midst of our suffering. The first way that we're going to see here I think is applicable all the time. The second one is a possible outcome of suffering. Two things that Jesus may be accomplishing when we are in the, the depth of, of valleys, loss of a loved one, disease, loss of job, fill in the blank as to the, the kind of suffering. Let me just set one caveat first before we, we touch on number one, and that is this. Neither of these, these things that Jesus is teaching in this passage, will satisfy you if you do not love God supremely. And, and, and here's what I mean by that. If you or a loved one are suffering or have been through suffering, enduring some kind of suffering, and the only thing that you want at this point is relief from suffering and nothing else will do, nothing else will satisfy except a relief from the suffering, then this will not satisfy, what Jesus says here in John chapter 9. We must love God more than we love comfort, ease, and the lack of pain. And we must believe that God loves us and is sufficient in his grace for us in all of our sickness, suffering, and pain, and that he can work through those things to glorify himself, that he is working all things together for good, as he defines good for them that love him. 
and are called according to his purpose. Otherwise, what Jesus says here will not satisfy. If our only statement to Jesus is, you must make this go away, then what Jesus says here will not help. So two things God may be doing in our suffering, and I'm going to put them under the headings. You have them in your notes of display and divide. First, Jesus very clearly says, this man's blindness was not the result of anyone's sin, his or her, his parents. His blindness was intended to display the mighty works of God. His blindness was intended to display the mighty works of God. I, I want to just key in on one word there, and that is the word works, plural. We want to, the, the, the temptation here is to sort of make this one singular work, that God is glorified in the healing of the blind man, that by God giving sight to the blind man, by that singular work, that is the display of God's glory. And we want that to be the answer because essentially that lets us say, it's okay if God permits or brings suffering into my life so long as I know that the outcome of it is some kind of wonderful, gracious healing. If I know that this sickness will always end in healing, then, then God is indeed mighty and great, and, and I can endure this suffering. That's not what he says here. Now, certainly the healing of the blind man will be a clear display of, of the power and the greatness of God. There's, there's no question about that, but verse 3 is not referring exclusively to that when it says that this blindness is intended to display the works of God. So verse 4, this is Jesus continuing to speak. He says, We must work the works of him who sent me while it is day. Night is coming when no one can work. As long as I am in the world, I am the light of the world. Stop there. What Jesus is teaching his disciples and, and us through this passage is we need an otherworldly kind of different perspective when it comes to suffering and pain. Because when we are in the midst of hardship and suffering and pain, the thing we want is an end. We want it to be temporary. We want to pass through this phase. And, and we also we tend to focus on cause because we think if we can get to cause, we can then find solution. If I know what does this, and that's kind of what the disciples hint at here, if we, we understand what the cause is, then maybe we can rectify it in some way and, and, and fix it. And instead, what Jesus is saying to his disciples here, when he says, we must work the works of him who sent me while it is day, now is that time, is that our otherworldly approach to suffering and pain is the perspective that says, in every circumstance, I have an opportunity to magnify the greatness of God. In, in every opportunity, while there is life, while I have breath, while God's spirit is at work within me, I have the opportunity to do the works of God even when it's in the midst of suffering. Pain and suffering are debilitating. They can be consuming. But the lesson here from Jesus in verses 4 and 5 is, listen, there is a limited window of time in which to glorify God. There is coming a time, and this echoes back to last summer when we looked at Ecclesiastes and the brevity of life. There is a, a limited window of time in which to enjoy God and declare his glory. Do so. Seize that. 
That's what Jesus is doing for himself at this point, speaking as the one who is the light of the world, who is here for a time, and who will soon depart from them. 1 Corinthians 10.31 says, Whatever you do, do all to the glory of God. Whatever is great when it's a sunny day and life is good and the kids are listening and the job is well and, and things, I feel good. I woke up and I, I, I don't have as much pain as I did the day before and, and all is good. And I am glorifying God because it's all so good. And, and scripture doesn't allow us to limit it to that because God says whatever you do. Whatever you do, do it all for the glory of God, which then brings us back to display God's glory in everything. What about, what about the suffering of a child? What about a debilitating sickness? What about the sin that I've experienced at the hands of someone else? Even there, what Jesus is saying here is we are stewards. We are not in that circumstance outside of the providence of God. And so we are there as stewards to still display the works of God and glorify him even in the midst of that. So in blindness, in cancer, in job loss, in abuse, in family strife, in a broken down car, in a lost job, in all of these things, there are opportunities for us to run to Jesus and cry out to Jesus and cling to Jesus and believe that his grace is sufficient that he will not abandon us, that he will not forsake us, that he will keep us, and that he will cause us to persevere through this and, and, and even permit us to go through it without sinning, even permit us to go through it in a way that finds contentment and peace in the midst of it. And all of these things, our response, can display the great, gracious power of God at work in our lives by people seeing the hope and strength and peace that we have. Even when everything in life seems chaotic and painful, we can run to Jesus and glorify him by displaying how God is at work in our lives. Remember, Jesus at this point is moving toward the deepest suffering in his own life. He is moving toward the cross with each and every exchange like this. He is moving that much closer to the cross. And rather than being consumed with the sorrow and grieving that lies ahead, he is still saying, I am here for a time. We have light right now. The light of the world is in your midst. Let's do the work while there is day because night is coming. We, we will be gone from here. And our season to glorify him will go with that. The, the light of the world would soon be nailed to a cross and ascended to heaven. And that's what he has in mind there in verses 4 and 5. Seizing every moment he has left to display the works of God to these people. So let's read on. Verse 6. Having said these things... He spit on the ground and made mud with the saliva. Then he anointed the man's eyes with the mud and said to him, Go, wash in the pool of Siloam, which means scent. So he went and washed and came back seeing. The neighbors and those who had seen him before as a beggar were saying, Is this not the man who used to sit and beg? Some said, It is he. Others said, No, but he is like him. And he kept saying, I am the man. So they said to him, Then how were your eyes opened? He answered the man called Jesus, made mud, and anointed my eyes, and said to me, go to Siloam and wash. So I went and washed and received my sight. They said to him, where is he? He said, I don't know. So here's the, the scope of the display of God's power now expanding. 
to neighbors and to passers-by who had seen this man begging. This man is not unknown to people. They have seen him. Just like if you have a person who is out begging at a particular place when you get off the train every day on your way to work and you see that person day after day after day, and if suddenly that person was transformed and, and different, you, you would stop and, and might be startled by that. Well, here's what's happening. They're saying, what's gone on here? They cannot wrap their minds around this. This man wasn't temporarily blind. This man was blind ever since they knew him. He was blind since birth. And how is he now walking to us without assistance and seeing us? And he has eyesight. And, and, and they are just blown away by this. People born blind in that era were essentially unfixable. There was no hope. So this is beyond their comprehension. So they say, how, how did this happen? And he describes to them, here's what Jesus did. That man called Jesus, how he made mud, and he applied the mud, and I washed, and now I see. So the question then that may well come up at this point is, what's the deal with the saliva and the mud? Why this process of healing this man? We know that Jesus, on, on other cases, simply spoke, and the person was healed, or simply touched, and the person was healed. Why this? I think D.A. Carson might offer the best answer to this. He says it is extremely difficult to decide just what this signifies. He's being honest. Text doesn't tell us why. Now, I'll, I'll give you, I think, what's one helpful insight to this that perhaps points us in the direction of why Jesus did it this way. We talked about this back before when we talked about the rabbis took the Sabbath and they built all kinds of rules around the Sabbath to protect you couldn't work, and so they had their list of dozens of things that you could not do that classified as work. Making mud was on that list. You, could, you may recall this. You could spit on the ground, but if you took your sandal and started to push it around a little bit, that was cultivating soil. And so you were guilty then of violating the rabbi's rules on the Sabbath. And so when Jesus takes dirt and spits into it, he is violating the rabbinical rules for protecting the Sabbath because he's now making mud. It's as if he is working. In addition, there were uh, rabbinical standards concerning spit and saliva, not, not all that different from our own approach to the topic, going all the way back to the book of Leviticus 15.8 and, and warning there about a, a discussion there about spitting. So we know from the prior Sabbath healing, that part of what is happening with the religious leaders is they are going to be angry at Jesus for healing on a Sabbath. Why couldn't you just do this any other day? Why do it on the Sabbath? Jesus now compounds the healing with this making of mud and spitting, making mud and working on the Sabbath in that way. So I would suggest to you, and the text doesn't tell us for sure, but, but I, I think we could perhaps extrapolate that at least in part what Jesus is doing is just putting on display the utter foolishness of man's rules, of the, the pharisaical rules that had been hedged around to, to sort of block people in to their own interpretation of what the law was. He is highlighting the foolishness of them now not only being offended bizarrely at a man who has been born blind now being able to see how could you possibly be offended at that but further makes it even worse that he made mud on that day and Jesus is just demonstrating their foolishness 
One last note from this section, and that's verse 7, when he says, go wash in the pool of Siloam, the Apostle John adds, which means sent. That the significance of Jesus as the sent one should be beginning to resonate with you as we've moved through the Gospel of John, and all of the times that the dispute with the religious leaders has come down to, we don't know where you're from. We don't believe you're sent from God. We just think that you are some lowly guy from some lowly carpenter up in Galilee, and we have no regard for you. That issue of Jesus' origins has come up time and time again, and, and I think it's John here, by reminding us that Siloam means sent, pointing to the fact that the one who is sent by God is now doing a miracle that only the sent one could do because he is doing a miracle that only God can do. He is giving sight as only God could do. So, verse 13, let's pick up there. They brought to the Pharisees the man who had formerly been blind. That would be the neighbors, the passers-by. They take the man go to the Pharisees. Now it was a Sabbath day when Jesus made the mud and opened his eyes. John explaining that. So the Pharisees again asked him how he had received his sight. And he said to them, he put mud on my eyes, and I washed, and I see. Some of the Pharisees said, this man, referring to Jesus, whoever this man is who did this, is not from God, for he does not keep the Sabbath. But others said, how can a man who is a sinner do such signs? And there was a division among them. So they said again to the blind man, what do you say about him since he has opened your eyes? He said, he is a prophet. The neighbors are astonished, right? And their taking of the man to the Pharisees is not to try to get, I don't think, trying to get Jesus in trouble. I think, and we'll see this very clearly in the text, there is a widespread understanding of the Pharisees' animosity toward Jesus at this point and their mission to destroy Jesus. And now hearing from this man that a guy called Jesus, the man called Jesus did this, I think this now sets up a scenario for this crowd to say, let's go to the Pharisees. Let's see what they have to say about this. They hate Jesus. They despise. They want to destroy Jesus. So let's see how they explain this one. This is an enormous test for the Pharisees when they bring this man to him. Because now this is a demonstration of everything that the crowd loves about Jesus. He's healing people and giving sight. So now what? Of course, John reminds us in verse 14 of the making of the mud and the healing of the eyes on the Sabbath. Verse 16 then makes it clear that as far as the Pharisees are concerned, that is the issue. Completely ignoring the healing. This man is not from God, for he does not keep the Sabbath. That's, that's the nature of their attack on him. He's made mud and he's healed someone on the Sabbath. The other thing, though, about verse 16 that sort of sets the tone for the rest of the chapter is this division that comes up. You've got some Pharisees saying immediately, this guy is evil. He doesn't keep the Sabbath. And you've got other Pharisees saying, wait a minute, he, he gave sight to a man born blind. How, how can he be evil? I mean, don't we have to agree that this is a work of God that made this possible? How can we just sort of write him off? And this division arises. Two things that God may be doing in the midst of our suffering. The one we've talked about, the display of God's glory. And the second thing I think we see, God's work in difficult and unusual circumstances like this is, God, is, is that God can cause use that to divide people. I think what we see here is a division of fallout in response to this. Some of the Pharisees saying that was wrong and disobedient. Others saying it's not possible. 
There's nothing like tragedy to divide people. We see it on a very superficial level in our country. Every time there is some tragedy, just go to social media and people will immediately take sides. This person is to blame. That party is to blame. This law would have prevented it. This caused it. And, and immediately in the midst of tragedy, we have people taking sides over the, the, the source and reason for the tragedy. Pain and suffering can do the same. Pain can bring out the best and the worst in people. The very term affliction has the picture of pressing in. When we are afflicted, we are, we're sort of being squeezed. It's the idea that, that there's pressure on me and what is in my heart. And if that is anger and bitterness and resentment, that's what's going to get squeezed out of my mouth at that point. What's, out, what's in the heart flows out of the mouth. Affliction has a way of doing that. If there is contentment and peace and joy, even in the midst of affliction... That, that can press out on us and still leave us praising God in, in the middle of that. The debate over what happens to this man is going to devolve into angry recriminations to the point that they are going to, they're going to be going after the man himself, this man who has just been healed, and, and mocking him because they are so angry. As for the man himself, they say, so what do you say about him? Because he hasn't identified necessarily at this point. He knows it's Jesus because he told the neighbors it was a man named Jesus. Um, when he talks to the Pharisees, he calls him this man who put mud on my eyes. So verse 17, when they say, well, what do you say about him? He says, he's a prophet. That was probably the, the highest spiritual office that that man would have understood at that point in time. The, the belief that this was a sent one from God, the belief that this one was walking in, in the power um, and even, even, even in the likeness, if you will, of Moses, who was the, the one who had come before. And this is sort of that second Moses, that prophet who walks in those steps. And so he's not diminishing Jesus by calling him a prophet. He's simply saying what he thinks is the highest possibility for a man that is of spiritual office. He must be a prophet. Same thing that the Samaritan woman at the well refers to Jesus as a prophet. So this healed man knew that Jesus was a man of God. Things get worse after he says that. Verse 18, the Jews did not believe that he had been blind and had received his sight until they called the parents of the man who had received his sight and asked them, is this your son who you say was born blind? How then does he now see? His parents answered, we know that this is our son and that he was born blind, but how he now sees, we don't know, nor do we know who opened his eyes. Ask him. He is of age. He will speak for himself. His parents said these things because they feared the Jews, for the Jews had already agreed that if anyone should confess Jesus to be Christ, he was to be put out of the synagogue. Therefore, his parents said, he is of age, ask him. First reaction of the Pharisees, completely reject the man. Here is the man and neighbors. This is completely consistent with the Jewish law, that you come with some witnesses. It is not just this man saying, hey, I had my sight given. It is all this crowd that has brought him that has said, we know this guy was blind, and now he sees. And so this is by the textbook, you know, the way you should do it. And what is the Pharisees' first reaction? We don't believe you. We need to speak to your parents. We need further proof that you were actually born blind. And it is from there, then, that we, we see what terrible shepherds these Pharisees are to the people that are reportedly put under their care because his parents now are so intimidated by the rabbis that they don't even want to answer the questions. His parents understand the threat. They, now, they know that if you even hint 
that Jesus is the Messiah sent from God, if you so much as suggest that, that the punishment will be excommunication. You will be thrown out of the synagogue. And understand, the synagogue is the center of Jewish community life. This is where your fellowship is, your friendship, your, your people. This is everything that you experience as part of a community. And the Pharisees have now made this threat that you will be cut off from the community if you say anything positive about this Jesus. And his parents understood that. They understood that the Pharisees' hatred of Jesus was so intense that anything even remotely favorable about Jesus might hint he was the Messiah and might end up in them being ostracized. And, and so they say, talk to him. He's an adult, but just get your answers from him because they, they don't want to face the wrath of the Pharisees. Verse 24. So for the second time, they called the man who had been blind and said to him, Give glory to God. We know that this man, speaking of Jesus now, is a sinner. He answered, Whether he is a sinner, I do not know. One thing I do know, that though I was blind, now I see. They said to him, What did he do to you? How did he open your eyes? He answered them, I've told you already, and you would not listen. Why do you want to hear it again? Do you also want to become his disciples? And they reviled him, saying, you are his disciple. We are disciples of Moses. We know that God has spoken to Moses, but as for this man, here it is again, we do not know where he comes from. The man answered, why, this is an amazing thing. You do not know where he comes from, and yet he opened my eyes? We know that God does not listen to sinners, but if anyone is a worshiper of God and does his will, God listens to him. Never since the world began has it been heard that anyone opened the eyes of a man born blind. If this man were not from God, he could do nothing. They answered him, you were born in utter sin, and would you teach us? And they cast him out. This has become profoundly vicious at this point. In a moment, we will see Jesus explain what seems to be the inexplicable anger of the Pharisees. But what is right now happening is they are standing in front of a crowd that has sort of put them on trial. And they are facing what has become the loudest and clearest testimony to the Messiahship of Jesus Christ up until this point in Jerusalem. They are standing there with, with evidence that they cannot refute. And this man is standing there saying, clear as can be, I don't know how else you explain this. I was blind. I was born blind. Now I see. It's pretty simple. And instead of responding with humility and repentance and brokenness, they become vicious toward this man. And so they re go back to this same old retort that we've seen before. Listen. You may think that this man is worth following. We are loyal to Moses. We obey the law. This man breaks the law. He heals and makes mud on the Sabbath. This man, we don't even know where he's from. And there's that line again. The whole issue of, is Jesus sent from God? He has said it again and again. He has demonstrated it with miracles that only God could do. And yet there they stand and say, we don't know where he came from. And they deny the testimony of Jesus and the miracles. The healed man at this point is stunned. In fact, it, he is incredulous in verse 30 when he says, why, this is an amazing thing. It is almost as if right now his, 
his looking at their unbelief is, is almost on a par with the miracle that was done to him. I mean, the miracle was amazing, but he's now astounded at their response to the miracle. How is it you look at this and don't see this? It's, it's so obvious, and he's amazed. How is it possible that men steeped in God's law would reject one who gives sight to the blind, who does the work of God? How can he not be from God? Isn't, isn't he the prophet that the Jewish people have been anticipating? In so many words, that's essentially what this man is saying. Is, isn't this the one? And, and, and he's done this. Why would you reject him? And he cannot get over it. In fact, he even mocks their foolishness because he says in verse 30, that not only this is an amazing thing, he says, you do not know where he comes from, and the you is emphatic there. His point is, you, you teachers of the law, you students of the Old Testament, you who have deliberated over knowing the things of God, you, I, I'm just a lowly beggar. You see this? And don't understand where it comes from? It doesn't make sense. It all seems so elementary to a man who has never been to rabbinical school, who's never been trained, who is simply enjoying sight for the first time in his life and concluding, how could this possibly not be of God? How does this come about if apart from God? How can you attribute this to evil? giving sight to me who has never seen. Are you suggesting that, that what Jesus just did doesn't show the power of God? Because to a simple man who had spent his life begging in blindness, it made complete sense. In fact, he makes that statement in verse 32, never since the world began has it been heard that anyone opened the eyes of a man born blind. It... it, it perhaps is some hyperbole at this point, but put yourself in his situation, and this is a man who no doubt has asked people if they have ever heard of someone being born blind healed. I mean, if you were that man and you were an adult, wouldn't you have numerous times in life said, heard people tell stories of physical care or medical care or different things and said, hey, have, have you ever heard of someone who's been able to see who's been born blind? And he's asked it repeatedly. And so now he's able to say to them, this has never happened before. I can tell you. I've been looking for it all my life. I've been hoping for it. And it's never happened. And so his conclusion is equally simple. If this man, Jesus, is not from God, he could do nothing, much less give sight to a man born blind. That is the point where the Pharisees presumably should have said, amen. <laughs> You're right. I don't know how we counter this anymore. You know, this, this is clearly the truth. And instead, their response is to curse the man. You were born in utter sin, and would you teach us? And they cast him out. They brand him as a heretic, essentially, and say, you have no part in this community. We don't want to see your face again. You have no fellowship with the community. And they cast him out. That is just remarkable blindness at this point and remarkable anger to take this man who has just been given sight and say, you're done. We, we have nothing more to do with you. Verse 35, Jesus heard that they had cast him out, and having found him, he said, do you believe in the Son of Man? He answered, and who is he, sir, that I may believe in him? Jesus said to him, you have seen him, and it is he who is speaking to you. He said, Lord, I believe, and he worshiped him. What a great scene. 
after the man is cast out, who is now essentially ostracized from the community, what does Jesus do? He goes to him. And he comes to the man, and he finds him. And the result is this marvelous confession and act of worship on the part of the man. Remember, the last time Jesus had been with the man, he sent him away with mud on his eyes, still in his blindness, and said, go and wash. So this is the moment when this guy, for the first time, is seeing the one who healed him. He's now standing before him. And that's why Jesus says, you've seen him, and you're seeing him now. And his response is instantaneous. Jesus said to him, you have seen him. It is he who is speaking to you. The man said, Lord, I believe, and he worshipped him. One time in the Gospel of John when we see that word used to describe someone worshipping Jesus Christ is this blind man. He is just exalting Jesus, immediately responding in faith and belief. 39, verse 39, Jesus said, For judgment I came into this world, that those who do not see may see, and those who see may become blind. Some of the Pharisees near him heard these things and said to him, Are we also blind? Jesus said to them, If you were blind, you would have no guilt, but now that you say we see, your guilt remains. Jesus finishes by giving us sort of the insight that explains the whole passage, really, because it is just filled with incredible irony. A blind man who had never been able to see was given sight by Jesus, while those who viewed themselves as the most enlightened men of their age, who believed themselves to be the light for other people, who could see all of these spiritual things and guide them in them, are actually the ones that God has judged and condemned for their blindness. It is just a complete irony. In Matthew 23, Jesus is condemning the Pharisees. And in Matthew 23, Jesus declares judgment. In verse 16, he says, Woe to you, blind guides. Verse 17, you blind fools. Matthew 23, 19, you blind men. Their eyesight was perfectly clear. They saw what Jesus did. They saw the miracles. And yet, they were spiritually blind and unable to see that this was God who had sent Jesus as the Messiah, that Jesus was doing what only God could do. Meanwhile, the man born blind not only has his eyes open to see, but now has the spiritual sight to see the work of God through Jesus Christ. This division that we're seeing here is more than just a division between belief and rejection. It is also a contrast between arrogance and humility. It is a contrast between a man who knows nothing but need, helpless need, and those who think we have everything. We are everything. We are God's chosen. We, we are fine. A contrast between a sincere sense of need and a proud sense of success. Jesus rescues that blind man in the way that he saves you and I as sinners delivering us out of our blindness and giving us sight, coming to us in our most helpless state and causing us to see his beauty and causing us to embrace the gospel. Jesus acted in grace and power to rescue a man who had no other hope. This man was so hopeless that he, he wasn't crying out for eyesight. He was just begging for some kind of financial support. And Jesus saved him. This man had nothing in life. 
He had nothing to boast about. He had no resume of accomplishments. He couldn't pitch to Jesus, hey, if you heal me, you know, I've got a great reputation and I'll, I'll work for you or I'll do this or that. He had nothing. He was a blind beggar. And Jesus heals him. Christ's saving of the humble and lowly who come to him with nothing also means his rejection of those who are arrogant and proud. So when he says here in verse 39, for judgment I came into the world, we know that he had said earlier in John 3 he didn't come to condemn the world but to save the world. But the reality is that when he saves those who are lowly and humble who come to him with nothing in their hands, that he is also rejecting and condemning those who come saying, I already have everything I need. <laughs> there's, there's really nothing I need from you. I, I like having Jesus because it's cool to, to sort of know Jesus and have Jesus around. I don't really need anything, much less salvation from sin. That was the attitude of the Jewish leaders. They could not think of a thing that they could ever need from Jesus. How this unstudied son of a carpenter from Nazareth could ever do something for them that they didn't already have, didn't already know, was beyond their comprehension. How could this guy offer us anything? He has nothing. We already have. We have sight. That's his condemnation there at the end. You're sitting here saying to me, instead of pleading to me for help, you're saying, we already see it all. We've got it all figured out. So how is it that you need a Savior? They never believe they needed Jesus, and it's the same today. If you are lost in guilt and sin, and you have come to the end of yourself and realize your helpless state, and you cry out to Jesus, Jesus will do immeasurably more than all you ask or imagine. Jesus is the one who saves, who rescues. If you are suffering in some way, if you are trusting in Christ and going through some kind of hardship and will cry out, he will minister his sufficient grace to you. He will love you and care for you and protect you and cause you to persevere. But if you are filled with pride and you are blaming God for whatever your lot in life is and you are angry and arrogant, then you should not expect the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ. The Pharisees were pretending to be something that they were not. The Pharisees believed they were the ones with 20-20 vision, arbiter of the truth, when in fact they couldn't see the Messiah standing right in front of their face. They were completely blind. And that's why Jesus says your guilt remains. There's no hope for one who is too arrogant to admit brokenness. If, if we believe in a mighty God who is able to bring glory to himself through even our most painful circumstances and sustain us and care for us and preserve us and love us and magnify himself in us through that, then, then we can depend on him. And we can rest in him, bringing nothing in our hands but our faith and trust in him. Even when his answer in those moments is something along the lines of saliva and mud. How many times have we cried out and said, God, here's my predicament. Here's, here's what I'd like. And God's answer is, is maybe a little bit more akin to spit and mud at that point, at least as far as our comprehension goes. This isn't what I asked for. This isn't actually the way that I saw this working out. I, I wanted you to do this, Jesus, but I didn't, I didn't quite think it would work this way. Even in those moments, can we trust him? Can we rest in him? Can we believe that his ways are perfect and depend in him and know that it may not make complete sense on this side of eternity, 
because ultimately our chief desire here is to shine a spotlight on the glory of God so that whatever we are walking through, that people would somehow see Christ through us as we walk through it. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you for your son, Jesus Christ. We thank you for his wonderful, rich salvation, for the hope of the gospel. Lord, we thank you for taking broken lives, making them whole. We thank you for taking what we sometimes feel like as ruined sinners and giving them new life and making them new creatures in Christ. Thank you that the, the hope of the gospel is not one of just sort of adjusting things and making tweaks, but it is, it is indeed the making of a new creature in Christ. It is the giving of new life. It is resurrection from the dead. It is hope. It is your spirit indwelling us. Father, I pray that if there are any here who are not trusting in Jesus Christ as Savior, would today you graciously open their eyes to see the wonder and beauty of the gospel and to see the Savior who gave his life as a ransom in their place and who rose again victorious over the dead. Father, we pray, I pray for those who are struggling with hardship, pain, suffering, sickness, whatever it might be. Lord, might, might you encourage them again when the temptation is to, to be proud or angry. Lord, cause them to be humble and broken before you and, and desirous of seeing you at work in the midst of whatever that hardship is. Help us, Lord, to rejoice in seeing you exalted in our lives, even when our lives are hard. Thank you for your son, Jesus Christ, who came to ransom sinners, who came to give sight to the blind, who came to give life to the dead. Thank you, Jesus, for giving your life in our place. And we pray this in your name. Amen.